From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. At the Undisciplined Science Show, we introduce you to a natural scientist working in a subject like astronomy. Then we welcome a social scientist from a field like history. And then we put them in a room and force them to talk about life. Today's meetup, the anthropologist and the aerospace engineer. That's Undisciplined, after the news. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today on the show, we're talking about searching for things, underground and among the stars. Joining us today in studio are Anna Cohen, who uses space-age technologies to map ancient cities, and David Geller, who works to identify and map space junk to protect our astronauts and satellites in orbit. First up, the anthropologist. The photo of Anna Cohen on her webpage is exactly what you'd expect for an anthropologist whose work is focused on the ancient world. There she is in a wide-brimmed hat, blue jeans and boots, kneeling down in the dirt and shoveling away at an archaeological dig. But what happens when you just can't get down in the dirt and start digging? What happens when heavy vegetation, rugged topography, and remoteness get in the way? Well, Cohen and her associates have demonstrated that you can learn a lot about very old societies without ever dipping a shovel in the ground by using airborne LIDAR, a remote sensing method that uses pulsing lasers to measure distances. Anna Cohen, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let's start with a quick tutorial. What is LIDAR and how can it be used to help us understand ancient societies? Well, LIDAR, or light detection and ranging, is a remote sensing technique, meaning that you're measuring objects from afar uh, without actually touching them. Um, So this is a remote sensing technique that, as you said, uses uh, light, measures light, Um, through laser pulses. Um, And this measures distances within the Earth. Um, Airborne LIDAR, which is most commonly used by archaeologists these days, means that you basically put a scanner on an airplane and you fly over the area that you want to map. And millions and millions of these laser pulses are shot down to the Earth. And some of them hit the top of the tree canopy if you're in a jungle environment. But a lot of them get through the tree canopy. And what you can do, what we can do, is measure the distance, basically, from what the lasers hit back to the scanner. And from that, we can create what's called a point cloud and create other 3D products um, that show us what's on the ground below the trees. And in doing so, we can see things like stone pyramids, um, mounds that are made from earth, and other agricultural features like terraces and houses and so on. So I'm, I'm, I just saw Black Panther and I'm like, what's going through my head? Is it like you could use this to like find Wakanda? Uh, maybe. I actually also just saw Black Panther. Um, yes, maybe. But my understanding was that you had to go through some sort of tunnel there. Oh. So I don't know. So maybe not. But, but what we can do, what we can absolutely do is map out an ancient society without ever actually stepping foot on the ground even. Yes, you can see if humans have modified a landscape, like creating pyramids, as I said, and other buildings, without going down to the ground. However, after you find or identify these structures, you do need to do what's called ground verification or ground truthing. And so you do need to go and do traditional pedestrian survey, which is what archaeologists have been doing for over 100 years. Oftentimes, though, it's really difficult to see these buildings, even if they're right in front of you. You have some of these products that are made from the LIDAR data, 
And uh, you can have those maps in a GPS unit, kind of like a bigger version of your phone. And you can see, oh, there's a structure over there, or there's another structure over there. And you can map it doing that. But again, these are really hard to see in jungle-like environments. So this technology, LIDAR and others, are really revolutionizing the way we understand um, past settlements and cities. What makes it hard when you're on the ground? There's there's dirt that's built up over it? There's vegetation? Yeah, there's just tons of vegetation. Um, if you've ever been to a forest or a jungle, uh, there's just vines everywhere and trees and leaves. And often you can't even see a big structure or building right in front of you. But this work that you can do with LIDAR, this, this, this mapping, gives you a way of knowing that there is something there to look for. Exactly, exactly. What, what can we learn about an ancient society when we build a map? What kind of clues does that give us to the way a society operated? Well, if you think about it, think about how a modern city is built. And think about if there's a central square or a central area where there's civic buildings, government buildings. If there are religious structures, we know there's churches and mosques and synagogues and other temples in other parts of the world. All of these structures tell us about how the society has decided to organize its city or town or, or even farm or household. And, you know, if we can look at how some of these buildings change over time, which some of the LIDAR data can record, but often you have to go down to the ground and see if these structures have been expanded over time. You can see whether, um, you know, there were environmental issues. Maybe they were going through a drought, and so they started building more containers for holding water. Maybe there was a lot of warfare in the region, so they started building bigger walls um, and other fortifications. So the settlement and these buildings can really tell you a lot about social structure and if they're going through other bigger processes. And you've done this work in Honduras and also in Mexico. Yep. What have you discovered there? Well, in Mexico, uh, starting in 2009, I was working with a big research team and we identified a lot of stone structures. Um, It's in the Lake Pátzcuaro Basin of Michoacán. And when the Spanish arrived in this region in the 1500s, there was an empire there called the Purépecha. They're around at the same time as the Aztecs. They're just lesser known. And we identified all these stone structures, and we thought, wow, this is, this is a lot. What, what is this? So for two years, we walked through this really wooded landscape and were mapping stone architecture. Around 2010, 2011, we obtained LIDAR data, and we saw that the stone architecture actually expanded for well over 10 square kilometers. And in fact, we got more recent LIDAR data, and we know it expanded over 26 square kilometers. So fast forward a few years, mapping thousands of structures, excavating thousands of pieces of pottery, me completing my dissertation on it. And uh, we have the city of Angamuco, which was a major city, probably had 40,000 buildings on it. And uh, this was a city that no one, at least in the archaeological world, knew about before the Spanish arrived. Going across sort of Central America to eastern Honduras is a region called La Mosquitia, which is a jungle landscape that is very poorly known, both historically and archaeologically. And it's very difficult to access. There are few roads. It's dangerous for a lot of reasons. There's cartel activity there. And it's just a remote jungle environment. And there has been very little archaeology there. And so uh, working with another team, 
we used LIDAR to see if there were any settlements in this jungle region. And unsurprisingly, there were, there are. And so I was part of the uh, multidisciplinary team of scientists to go down to Honduras in 2015 and 16 and excavate one of the settlements, which uh, we call Jaguar, City of the Jaguar, after these really cool stone carvings that we found. They were sort of sticking up from the, the earth. You've discovered or been parts of teams that have discovered lost civilizations. Well, we don't like to say that in archaeology. Because... Okay, what do, you, what do you say? What, 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 what is the word that I should use? Uh, first, archaeologically documented. Okay. Doesn't sound <laughs> as exciting, I realize. But, you know, these, these, these settlements and cities were never really lost, to be fair. Just because archaeologists didn't know about them doesn't mean they're lost. Uh, there's likely local peoples that knew about these, some of this architecture. In the case of West Mexico, there's a local community that lives right next to it, and they use it for grazing land. And they, they always are talking about how there's these little mounds. So it's not lost, but so first archaeologically documented. <laughs> when, you can, when you can make a map of something that is little known or little understood, um, what does that give uh, not just the scientific world, but also local populations? Well, one really important movement in archaeology, and I mean, it's, it's been going on for many years, is this idea that archaeological sites are not separate from the local communities who live around them. And whether they're descendant communities or just other stakeholders who live near the sites, it's important to, to collaborate with them in archaeological work. And so in the case of Western Mexico, there's a communal farming community that uh, lives right next to the site, and we've worked with them for excavations. And, you know, we've trained over 50 individuals in archaeological techniques. And, you know, it's just it's giving them an appreciation for heritage and archaeology. But they're also telling us things like where the best clay is from. That's what some of the guys told me about. I, was, I study pottery and telling us about their life ways. So it, it, it's kind of a back and forth. And it's re, again, it's really important to collaborate with these local communities. That's Anna Cohen. Anna, will you stick around with us so we can chat some more at the end of the show? Absolutely. Five, four, three, two, That is the sound of the Falcon Heavy SpaceX rocket lifting off into outer space. And if you are dreaming about going to space, you're going to be glad that our next guest is on this planet. Aeronautical engineer David Geller is one of the world's foremost experts on locating and tracking space junk. He's the lead investigator on the Space Situational Awareness Telescope for Astrodynamics Research. And while astronomers often use telescopes to look at other planets and stars, Geller has his honed a little closer to home. He's looking for space debris, pieces as small as a few inches in diameter that could prove catastrophic if they collided with a spacecraft or a satellite. David Geller, welcome to Undisciplined. Hello. David, we've been launching things into space for nearly 60 years, and a lot of what we've shot up there is still up there. How much space debris are we talking about? Oh, it depends on the size that you're interested in. If you're thinking about uh, objects on the size of the order of a softball or larger, 10 centimeters, say, or larger, we're looking at maybe 20,000 objects out there in space, 20,000. If you get down to a marble size object, we might be looking at more like, these are estimates now, a half a million. That's a lot of space junk. Right. 
what could even a small piece of debris do to a spacecraft? Oh, absolutely. Even a small piece of debris would, could be catastrophic. I mean, certainly something the size of a softball would, would definitely be catastrophic. The marble size, maybe maybe so, maybe not, depending upon what part of the spacecraft it hit. And then, there, by the way, there's smaller objects, paint uh, flakes, little like grains of sand out there, and there could be millions of those. Wow. Now, space is, of course, a big place. How big is the danger of a collision with something that might be catastrophic? Yeah, so just to, just to put a little bit of context here, the most populated area of space is in LEO, low Earth orbit. And that's a range of maybe 400 to 800 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. Okay, then above that, there's almost not much at all, really, until you get out to the geo belt, the geosynchronous belt. And then there's another large population of satellites out there. Now, if you look at the densest region of debris, this is the picture you need to have. Picture the state of Utah, okay? It's about 300 miles, approximately 300 miles across and and up and down. Now, take the state of Utah and make it into a cube 300 miles high. So now you have a cube 300 miles high by 300 miles wide by 300 miles thick. Now take that, remove all the canyons and the roads and the cars of Utah so that it's just the vacuum of space and place one debris object in there, 10 centimeters or larger. That's what the density of these debris objects is like. Doesn't sound too scary, does it? It's not, but you still would like to know where they are, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because they, they could be so catastrophic. So the chances that we're going to hit something like that are small, but the risk once you've been hit is pretty bad, right? It's pretty bad. It's and pretty and, bad. and, and, that, and that's, that's where the dangers really are. The satellite owners and operators, they spend anywhere from 10 to upwards of $500 million to launch their satellites. They don't want one of these accidental, as rare as they may be, collisions to happen, okay? And if you have a, a vehicle with humans on it, of course, it even, becomes even more important. We need to know where these objects are, and we need to be able to predict where they're going to be to avoid these potential collisions. And we can spot them, track them, even when they're just a few inches in diameter? How, how do you do this? So the LEO objects, the low-Earth objects, again, they're just 400 to 800 kilometers away. Those are most easily tracked with uh, radar, radar systems. You shine a beam of electromagnetic waves, a radio wave up, you look at the reflection, you can tell what's up there. And with a little bit of engineering, you can find out what its position is and what its velocity is. And that's how most of the LEO objects are detected. The objects out in GEO, the geosynchronous belt, now that's not hundreds of kilometers above the Earth, that's 36,000 kilometers above the Earth. And the radar systems can't look very accurately that far away. So this is where the telescopes now come into play. This is where our our USU STAR telescope comes in. We're focusing on the geo debris, the debris in the geo belt with our telescope. And how is it that we can, I mean, maybe you can do a little tutorial here. How, do, how does that even work? How is this telescope able to see something that small, that far away? It's, it's really not that, that complicated. It, it has a very expensive and sensitive CCD camera, and it has a, uh, an aperture that's wide enough to t- detect enough photons so that for geo, we can detect objects like softball-sized objects 36,000 kilometers away. What does it feel like when you find one of these? It must be, it must be thrilling. <laughs> it, it looks pretty weird to see these objects because you can see all the stars in the background, and then you can very distinctly see these objects that are not stars. And so it's, it is kind of weird to look. Through. And we can take thousands of images every night, and we look through them. And it's, I'm, I, even today, I still enjoy just going through and seeing the odd things that show up. 
Are there others who are doing this work? I imagine that space junk is a concern for anyone who has ambitions to send human satellites, other spacecraft out there space. are there, there's a there's a there is there's a big movement in this area with with the telescope part anyway with the geo belt and so forth I, i've heard that our telescope is the first one though dedicated to looking for orbital debris west of the mississippi i think is what i've heard there may be two or three in the nation dedicated to searching for orbital debris so we're, we're at the you know we're at the forefront of this the world recently watched SpaceX launch a Tesla Roadster into space. When I watch that, I see a remarkable feat of engineering and marketing. I'm wondering what you see as a as a space debris expert. So I know you know I know exactly what I see. We have this catalog that is maintained approximately twenty thousand objects, and we try to understand where these objects are going to be at the time of the launch or at the time uh, the Falcon Heavy was going to be in orbit. And they compare the positions of these objects to where the Falcon Heavy is going to be, and if they're even remotely close together, they change the launch window of the of the, the Falcon launch. They'll move it or, or delay it a little bit just to make sure. It, there's a very, even though the probability is very small, a little short delay in the launch time can make the probabilities just virtually vanish. And I'm sure they do this kind of stuff for every launch nowadays. Now, are, are you able to track this this car that's now orbiting around <laughs> the, the globe? Yeah, I think one of what we, let's see, I talked about this with one of my students recently. I think it's now it is too far because it is way beyond the geosynchronous belt now. By now, I'm sure it's a hundred times further away. So no, we can't track it, unfortunately. As we send more things into space, uh, is more debris just inevitable? Here's the big problem. The big problem is not the debris right now. If we can track it and catalog it, it, we can uh, avoid the collisions up front. Here's really the big concern. This debris, over time, one debris object will collide with another debris object to create more debris. This has happened once so far. We've had a collision in space. Two debris objects collided to create hundreds of debris objects. The odds of that collision. They were small, but over 60 years, there's one, right? And now there's hundreds of more pieces of debris out there. And as time goes on, there, there's, there, even if we never put anything into space again, there's this exponential, predicted exponential growth in the amount of debris objects just due to the collisions of larger objects. So that's the real problem. What do we have to, what can we do about that? So this, this is out of my area, generally out of my area, but there are organizations private I don't and maybe governmental that are looking at ways to get take this debris and remove it permanently from the space environment the space junk collection you're right the space junk collection business and and don't don't laugh you just imagine you as a communication satellite operator have this nearly billion dollar asset up there wouldn't you pay a company 10 or 20 million dollars to go up there and remove the junk that might be near your satellite I, I want to be a space junk collector. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> That's David Geller. David, ready for a chat about something that doesn't have catastrophic consequences for space travelers? I'll give it a try. All right. So now for an introduction. David, I would like to introduce you to anthropologist Anna Cohen. And Anna, I'm really happy to introduce you to aerospace engineer David Geller. So there are no real ground rules for how this part of the show works, but here's how it goes generally. The question I'm about to ask you isn't about space per se, and it's not about finding ancient civilizations, but you're certainly welcome to bring your areas of expertise into your answers. Here's what I want to know. You are both working on new ways of searching for things, employing technology to solve problems and help us understand our world. How do we encourage young people across our globe 
to be seekers in a world in which it often feels like the answers are right at our fingertips. Anna, you want to tackle it first? Well, one of the interesting ideas that has come about in science over the last few years is the idea of citizen science and democratizing knowledge and uh, making a lot of these ideas and technologies accessible to a broader population. And this is uh, certainly the case with uh, the widespread use of the internet, right? And um, in archaeology in particular, there's a really interesting program, um, and I'm sure there's many others, uh, that was put forth by a space archaeologist um, with Ted prize money. And uh, she developed a program in which people can log in and identify using satellite imagery um, looting in parts of Egypt and parts of Peru. And so if you train people who aren't necessarily archaeologists or specialists in some of these technologies to use them on a very basic level, um, and then also be able to understand what these um, technologies can can be useful for um, for the purposes of cultural heritage, but you know other environmental degradation and things like that. This is a very interesting and unique opportunity uh, to get young people and people around the world who maybe aren't in a university setting involved in some of these technological tools. David, uh, the space community uses a lot of citizen science, right? There's a lot of people engaged in this way. That's correct. Are there opportunities to use that to inspire uh, young people to to search for answers using different techniques like, like what you're doing? Yeah, I think I think a lot of that really is already in place. And, you know, NASA has a lot of a lot a lot of programs geared to the high school kids and the college kids to begin with, giving them opportunities uh, to use telescopes, to use computers. Uh, to explore the solar system, you know, and, and beyond. So I think some of that is already out there and available for the students. What What would you advise uh, people to do to encourage other scientists? What do, What do you tell other scientists about how to get people excited about science? Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm a little biased here because I I've just uh, run two kids through high school and, and one that's still in high school, and I find that the the success. The, the the path to success is to get these kids interested in, in uh, relevant current uh, ideas. Like if you're – my son's in a chemistry class, but they're not connecting the chemistry to the relevant technologies that are out there that need chemists to, to work on them. So I think that's the key to the teachers in the high schools and the college level. They have to make the materials that are kind of just educational. They need to show the relevance of it to what's actually going out there, going on right now in the world. And then the kids get excited automatically, I think. Do you see that in in your your teaching and your research as well, that this, this opportunity to tie young people to relevant science that's going on as opposed to just teaching them the history of whatever field they're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with David. Uh, in archaeology and anthropology in particular, there are so many things that studying past peoples and how they adapted to environmental conditions, for example, how that can tell us uh, about how we should be adapting to different issues like climate changes. You know, if, if societies went through a drought, how can we study that from an archaeological perspective? And then how can we learn from that? 
So environment is just one major um, issue. Uh, looking at um, inequality and class differences in the past. Uh, what were people's reactions? Um, there's a lot of inequality today in the world. So what are we expecting that people's reactions are going to be today based on what happened in the past? How is it different today than in the past? How can we learn from that? So absolutely, making my field in particular relevant to issues today is very important. One of the things that I really uh, appreciate about having both of you in the room right now is the energy level I feel is really, you guys are both really into what you do. How do you spread that? How do you make that contagious to, to other people? Well, for me, it's very easy because I think archaeology is very exciting. And whether you're talking about lasers in the jungle, uh, there's always something in archaeology that seems to come out and make the news, especially these days. Or you're talking about a, you know, a tomb of some queen in Egypt or some other ancient hominin that has been found in Africa. Uh, it's pretty easy to use some of these, uh, these science news clips to, to show students how archaeology and science are changing constantly and how they can be part of that. They can follow that and they can uh, sort of engage in some of this literature. What do you find is the thing that gets people most excited about space, David? What's... It, it has to be uh, you know, human exploration. I think that's the people who are in the area of who are in the space arena, want to be aerospace engineers, they're there because they are interested in the exploration, human exploration of space, going back to the moon and onto Mars to establish permanent presence at these, in these places. You guys are both explorers. Do you feel like explorers? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. Uh, I don't feel like an explorer. I feel like someone who uh, documents the re remains of ancient societies. And you don't feel like a space explorer? Like when you look in your telescope, it doesn't like... The, the telescope, I have to say, you do feel a little bit like an explorer there. But the, <laughs> but the vast majority of my, my work, I think, is to help future explorers <laughs> rather than to be the explorer. <laughs> I would love to continue this, but we are almost out of time. Anna Cohen, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you. And David Geller, thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. The Undisciplined Science Show is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>